Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. Margaret Thatcher's dream of a property-owning democracy was probably one of the most radical ideas of her time in office. Privatisations made shares available to vast swathes of the population and people gained a stake in their society. Starting with British Aerospace and Cable and Wireless in 1981, the first sales were more modest of companies that had long been private sector businesses and the government had no obvious business owning. But privatisation really took wing in 1984 when it moved on to state-owned monopolies with the sale of British Telecom, which became one of Britain's largest companies. And in 1986 came the sale of British Gas. You can still apply for shares in British Gas. Applications can be handed in at any branch of NatWest or Bank of Scotland. Using a full-scale advertising campaign with the shouty slogan, If you see Sid, tell him. Sid? Sid! 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 In the end, one and a half million SIDs stepped up and invested their £675 maximum allocation, valuing it at £9 billion at the time the largest share sale in British history. But as Rishi Sunak's government toys with the idea of reheating this old stuff to sell the taxpayers' remaining stake in NatWest Bank, it's worth asking whether any of the hopes of that time, whether the SIDs or Mrs Thatcher's Tory strategists were ever realised. Was there anything behind popular capitalism, or was it just, as Harold Macmillan once said, just flogging off the family silver to pay a few pressing debts? And here to consider popular capitalism and the sale of British gas, it's great to welcome back an old friend of the show, the author and former stockbroker, if I may say. Yeah, you are a former stockbroker, aren't you, Philip? Philip Auger. Thank you very much indeed, and I have to confess I am a former stockbroker. <laughs> well, so is Neil. Very junior one. Yeah, Clark, I think. Clark, the only time he's ever taken instructions. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we should start with the kind of great move to privatise industries in the 1980s, which obviously leads up to British gas. And I'm interested in kind of your sense of what drove that whole thing, to the extent to which it was a, a practical thing or, or an ideological one, Philip. Well, really good question. And since you kindly invited me back onto this show, I've been doing a bit of digging and trying to prompt my memory to recall exactly what was going on. And I thought the place that I would start would be Mrs. Thatcher's diaries, the Downing Street years. She's got a whole section on privatisation. And I mean, this would work best if I could do a Margaret Thatcher voice impersonation, but I can't. (laughs) I'll just read it out in my normal voice. But let me just read out what she said. Privatisation, no less than the tax structure, was fundamental to improving Britain's economic performance. But for me, it was also far more than that. It was one of the central means of reversing the corrosive and corrupting effects of socialism. Through privatisation, particularly the kind of privatisation which leads to the widest possible share ownership by members of the public, the state's power is reduced and the power of the people enhanced. This fundamental purpose of privatisation must not be overlooked. There you have it all. This was ideologically driven. It was to do with reversing, as she saw it, the corrosive effects of socialism. It was indeed 
to do with, as you mentioned at the beginning, widening share ownership, Jonathan, yeah. this fundamental purpose of privatization, the ideological doctrinaire business about reversing socialism, as she put it, must not be overlooked. I think it's a very interesting passage. Yes. And of course, if you go back in time, previous conservative governments had tried to reverse the nationalizations after the Second World War. So you had Churchill, well, he called it denationalized steel in the 1950s. Ted Heath famously had a manifesto which promised to roll back state ownership, but then only managed to get Thomas Cook into the private sector before having to nationalise Rolls-Royce and British Leyland, which were, I think, rather larger companies <laughs> moving in the opposite direction. But those, I think, were, were less about big ideas of freedom and transfer of ownership into private hands, getting rid of the taint of social ownership. I'm sure that uh, that was what drove Thatcher, and I think she's telling it like it is in her book. But I think that it was a dream rather than anything that was ever going to be realised, because even the might of all the millions who applied for British gas were not going to move the dial on a widespread ownership of shares by ordinary people. They're not going to put their money into shares rather than building society. This was the choice then. And not much has changed, I'm afraid, since then. You could argue in some ways it's got worse because people are not holding individual shares. Rather, they are participating in things like exchange traded funds, which are just essentially putting money into the market. So I fear that the exercise was doomed. Popular capitalism in that popular sense. Capitalism. Popular share ownership. Was there, do you think, Philip, do you think there was also a practical or financial motivation, which was that the Treasury wanted to move all these big state industries off its balance sheet with their inconvenient demands for investment? And there was this idea that somehow the private sector would magically make up the slack and the public wouldn't realise that instead of paying their gas bill to a government entity, they were paying for all this investment, but through a sort of gleaming new private enterprise. I think there's no doubt about that. In politics, you get the most potent, in British politics, you get the most potent force when number 10 and number 11 Downing Street come together, when you get the PM and the Chancellor backed by the sort of immense power of the Treasury all lining up behind an idea, then you've got a pretty shrewd idea that it is going to go through. And incidentally, I agree entirely with Neil's analysis of popular capitalism. It didn't really stick. Um, there was a brief period when people thought they could make a great deal of short-term money out of these issues. But in terms of this being a, a long-term commitment to, to companies and to share ownership, I completely agree. It, it didn't happen. Just turning back the clock a little bit, what's really interesting about this is that it was a very cautious start. There are various attempts, promises to do this back in time. It never quite happened. And it, I was looking at the very first of these, of this new wave of privatizations. This was British Aerospace in 1981. British Aerospace had only been nationalized by the Labour government in 1976. 
wasn't a very big privatisation. It should have been pretty straightforward. It was just £150 million offer for sale. There was a lot of doubt in the city that it would actually get done even. I think the nationalisation was actually even more recent. It was 1977. The thing that's really interesting about it was that the it was underwritten by one of the leading merchant banks at the time, Kleinwart Benson. Mm. But the government actually had to twist the arms of the other underwriters, Schroeder's, the firm where I worked, and Morgan Grenfell. In the end, it was a great success. It was three and a half times oversubscribed. And so we then moved on to the next one, Cable and Wireless. Why were they reluctant out of interest? Because no one had done anything like this in, in, re- in recent memory. They were doubtful that the capital existed in the city to do this kind of thing. And this is a theme that keeps coming up when we get on to the bigger privatisations. Straight after um, aerospace, they went on to cable and wireless. And again, there was scepticism that this would be done. Cable and wireless was a, a sort of historical anomaly rising from Britain's colonial and imperial past. It was the, mm. it was the telecoms business, essentially, for, for Hong Kong. And the West Indies. Yeah, and, and, and one or two other areas. Yep, exactly. They absolutely went like a fair again. And so their confidence starts to increase. And then they just start to gradually widen the net. There was a, there was a little company called Amersham International, yeah. medical technology business, which was massively oversubscribed, underpriced. Shares went to a huge premium. We're now talking about, I suppose, 83, 84, 82. I better be precise with you on the on the line, Jonathan. <laughs> and, uh, and now there is confidence that they can move to the big one. And the big one was actually British Telecom. In 1981, they're worried that they can't even sell £150 million of shares. With British Telecom, the offer for sale in 1984, I think, was just over £3 billion. Is it just that they underpriced shares and they find lots of people are willing to buy them. What's the magic ingredient? It's worth pointing out that all these famous old city names Mm. were basically very small businesses. They didn't have much capital, which is why they were so nervous, even to try and find 100, 150 million from the markets, because they were not used to dealing with those sorts of sums. It wasn't until later that uh, the really serious money started coming into the city and the place was transformed. That's a a very good point, Neil. But in fact, the first telecom privatisation, it was a kind of hybrid period between the days of small private partnerships in the old stock exchange and the new world of the big megabuck investment bank. So this was a, a hybrid one, a massive deal to pull off. It was the first one really where the public at large got absolutely gripped by it. You spoke earlier about the, the famous Tell Sid campaign for British gas. But actually, I would put the first British telecom sale, I don't know whether you you would agree, Neil, as the time when this really entered the kind of public imagination. Well, I would agree with that. I would add that it was quite clearly priced to go. So it wasn't a very difficult decision for the punter to make to put some money into it because he'd make an instant profit. The other thing which is worth saying about British Telecom and how the privatisation campaign shifts gear at that point, apart from just the size of it, is that it is a domestic monopoly and they have to go through a process of price regulation to persuade the customers that they're not about to get completely ripped off by this new private entity. But this happens. 
it's accepted. It's done pretty quickly. I think the regulation of British Telecom is all agreed over an evening in the number 10 flat in 1983 in the middle of winter. And by 1984, it's in the public markets and it seems to be working. So all of a sudden, you've opened up this great audience of massive state-owned behemoths, which have hitherto been great public corporations, which are all now sitting there, you know, like sweeties in a sweet shop waiting for the government to flog them off. And that, I think, brings you to the point that Neville Macmillan made. How much is this selling the family silver? as much in order to to sort of balance the books as it is to unleash popular capitalism and to expose companies to the sort of the keen wind of competition. It's it's an important point, I think. It was certainly very convenient, wasn't it? It certainly was. Given the size of the businesses which were being sold, they did make an impact on the public finances and, of course, made the budgets look much more attractive than they really were. So I think Harold had a very fair point. They weren't selling off the family silver to pay off a few debts, which you'd say is not exactly great long-term planning. So we have to sort of ask ourselves, what drove privatisation quite as far as it did? Because it's always seemed to me that there are some companies that were perfectly right and proper to be put into the in, into the private sector, companies that had been state-run and not very well-run mm. for a very long time. I'd actually probably say British Telecom was one of those, you know, pre-privatisation. Loads of phone boxes, remember those, were out of, out, out of repair for a very long time. You couldn't get a BT engineer to call. Service was terrible. That actually changed with privatisation. It gets more controversial and difficult when you look, and particularly for me, at the water companies, where you look at where public utilities are privatised. And there are questions to be asked about the balance of rewards between the new shareholders and, and the customers. And I think that's where that's where I think the selling the family silver probably drove the process too mm. far. That probably brings us in quite neatly to the Bridge of Gas story, because as we said, British Telecom goes to the market, proves the concept that the city can handle these vast privatizations. The public seem to like them. You've also proved that you can sell these sort of uh, giant monopolies with a bit of regulation. Now, British Gas is a particularly interesting case, because if you think about British Telecom, just at the time it's coming to the market, there are the first things which are happening which are going to change the competitive landscape for it over the long term. Cable and Wireless has set up a little telephone company, which is doesn't do brilliantly well. But more importantly, there are the mobile operators on the way. And in the long run, they are going to be pretty destructive of the British telecom monopoly. A little aside on the mobile telephony, BT were determined to keep a monopoly of the spectrum. And it was only because Ernie Harrison, boss of Raycol at the time, persuaded Margaret Thatcher that competition to have two operators was better than BT's argument about being able to use the spectrum more efficiently if they controlled the whole thing. Sorry, it's an aside. No, 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 no. It's an important aside. Because basically what happens in British Gas, of course, is that British Gas is totally unrestructured when it comes into the public market. It's basically the old British Gas Corporation, which is this giant organization which both has the ability to, it controls the issuing of exploration licenses for gas in the North Sea. It has long-term contracts as a monopoly customer 
of all the gas that is brought ashore in, ashore in the UK. And it controls everything in the sale of gas from putting the pipe into your house to even the appliances <laughs> that you're operating. And so it's just basically a Soviet corporation. <laughs> and it's done. And, and so the, the reason I, I, I had a look at this, because I couldn't understand why there was no effort to, because there had been Monopoly and Mergers Commission reports into British gas and whether it was an entirely fair operation. And various attempts have been made to chisel away at its monopolies in the early 1980s. But it basically just goes sailing into the public sector like this sort of uh, vast behemoth. And the only answer I could find was that Mrs. Thatcher, after the success of British Telecom, became obsessed by the idea of privatising British gas before the next general election. So she wanted it to go before she had to go back to the country in 1987. And they just wasn't time. So she just shoved it out into the public market without any attempt really to reform it. Looking to Mrs. Thatcher's diaries, um, Jonathan, that is a pretty good summary of exactly what she wrote, really. She was just clearly, she she blamed or she put the blame or the credit, whichever way you want to put it, onto uh, Peter Walker, who was the energy secretary. She says he was, quote, determined to privatise BGC as a whole. And it's it's that drive to do it. And it, it's kind of partly ideological. It's partly because it would achieve a huge amount, bring in a huge amount of money, that combination. But it, it's this area, where, the area of, of privatising a monopoly gets very, very difficult. And I, I think British gas is probably more remembered, that privatisation now is more remembered for the advertising campaign behind it and the the sort of huge amount that was raised than for any real um, consumer benefits, or in fact, in the end, shareholder benefits, I might say. Yes, it's rather difficult to calculate the shareholder benefits if, if you had held on to your allocation of British gas shares because it was later split into various different components, only two of which are recognisably part of the original. So I tried to do this sum, and basically, as far as I can see, you've doubled your money on one part of it, which is now the national grid, but you've halved your money on Centrica, which was the old British gas retail network, and just about broken even on BG, which eventually was taken over by Shell. And so all of that really is a product of a vast series of investigations and competition commission reviews which take place through the late 80s and 90s, which finally lead British gas to break itself up voluntarily in about 2000, I think, because yes. they figure that the world has become too competitive to for, to make much sense to be this thing anymore. But let's go back to the, the sale of British gas. I mean, how novel and innovative was it as a sort of whole exercise? Did it take on the story from British Telecom much? I think in terms of process, not much. But what was different about this was, I think it was Young and Rubicon who did the advertising campaign. Mm. And they had this um, Tell Sid campaign. You couldn't move throughout Britain, really, without coming across a billboard that said Tell Sid, the adverts on TV. And the point was, tell your friend, you tell your friend about it. Mm. The name, you know, the name Sid is chosen fairly carefully to conjures up the image of a, a kind of famous comic actor of the time who was called Sid James. 
Hancock's half hour. A pretty earthy, salty type. You know, they wanted they wanted everyone to get this, and it was phenomenally successful. And I think that was the closest we came to the the popular capitalism bit really taking grip. That's one of the two things I remember about British Gas. The other thing is this was the first time really that the the big new investment banks were involved. So I would, you could argue, couldn't you, that, that, that really the only long-term beneficiaries of the privatisation of British gas, okay, the, the taxpayer through the, through the coffers, but shareholders, not really, we would, we would suggest, consumer, hard to prove, but certainly the financial services industry benefited massively. Well, of course, the consumer, I have to say, initially, I would say the consumer isn't wildly well-served or impressed. I suppose the way in which it, it transmits itself, public dissatisfaction, is through the pay of, of the chief executive. And of course, British Gas has, at the time of privatisation, this character called Dennis Rook in charge, who I just have this memory of somebody who looks as if he could be standing on the platform at this uh, May Day celebrations in Moscow. And then there was this fellow who, who's only gone down in history, known as Cedric the Pig, which is... <laughs> well, that was a bit later, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, and in modern terms, his pay, which caused him to be called Cedric the Pig, would seem astonishingly abstemious. I think it was about £450,000 a year. The Dennis Rook, <laughs> you know, to look at him, you wonder whether there was a bolt through his head because he was an extraordinary looking man, you know, would have done a very good mad inventor. Or... Can I just interject? Because I suddenly realised I didn't put the machine on. Let's turn to Nat West then and this sort of distant echo. It's pretty much an echo of what was going on in the 1980s and really is the product of failure of regulation, you might say, in the 2000s, which allowed all these banks to get into trouble, which is why we ended up owning them in the first place. What prospects do you see for a any sort of uh, revival of popular enthusiasm for this sort of thing? I think in general, I see very few prospects of that um, for the reasons that we've just been talking about in the context of the privatising the monopolies. I expect this issue will, 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 will go fine because I would imagine it will be priced to go. And I think that that will ensure that it works. It'll raise some, I mean, it'll raise some interesting questions. You know, the tax, what loss will the taxpayer end up wearing on this one? It'll bring into play the whole issue of executive remuneration, corporate responsibility, all the rest of it. But I, this is not going to be anything like the, the British Gas or BT campaigns. But, you know, no doubt it will be imaginative. No doubt they'll put a lot of money behind it and no doubt they'll price it competitively. It will be crazy not to. The problem with banks is the underlying one that they are essentially too big to fail which is why the taxpayer or the, the state ended up with the shares in NatWest that it's trying now to sell. I don't think there's any possibility of getting away from that. The state is the ultimate guarantor of banks. At the same time, I would say they are generally highly inappropriate shares for individuals to hold because they have no understanding of the real risks that underlie them. The industry is in much better shape today than it was in 2008, but nobody is to say that it would never happen again. I mean, you'll end up with this. Do you remember the phrase that was running around at the time of the great financial crisis about privatising the gains and socialising the losses? We're going to get absolutely into that circus again, I think. 
banks, individual banks as long-term investments for, for private shareholders, you've got, really got to understand what it is you're getting into here and they'll need to, they'll need to make that clear. <laughs> well, they're supposed to. It'll be fascinating to see what they say. But they can't really say these shares are inappropriate <laughs> place for your personal wealth, which is what they are. Yes, you've got to get. You've got to get. It would be an interesting approach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't It'd be buy very these shares. far from tell Sid though. It would be don't tell Sid. This is a terrible deal. <laughs> I don't know whether that whether anything has been said about whether this is going to be a retail offer. Actually, I haven't seen that. Well, if they think it might buy a million votes by giving people a bribe with our own money, then I don't think they'd hesitate. There we are. Typical bleak view of human nature <laughs> coming from the little ray of sunshine on my right. <laughs> Do you know my battle, Philip, is to try and get <laughs> Neil to say something positive about the world or the prospect of things getting better. And I've been, we've been at this now for two years. There's no sign yet. <laughs> the, the idea of, of combining uh, Neil and me then on the same podcast is a <laughs> Privatisation, an interesting experiment. Many of the ideas behind it seem flawed. Is there anything positive, let's test you, that's come out of this whole experience? Or has it merely been a learning about how, <laughs> how not to do things? I think a couple of things have happened. I mean, I think we, we have learned that it's, uh, it's not smart to privatise public utilities, particularly monopolies. I think you know, that hopefully that message has absolutely got home. However, I think that um, some positives have come out of the privatisation of the kind of companies that really has no right to be sitting in the public sector. And many of those businesses are now, are now better run as a result, more innovative, better managed, and with a, with a better long-term future. So it's a mixed picture, actually. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.